what is the oral Torah? The Shavuot celebrates the giving of the Torah, but what is the oral Torah? And to really answer that question, we have to ask the question, what is the Torah? So the Hebrew word Torah comes from the Hebrew word Hora'ah, which means like more, mora is teacher, Hora'ah means instructions. Torah means instructions, a book of instruction. The Torah are, is the instructions that God gave to us. As part of our covenant with God, we became God's chosen people. God gave us instructions, and we are committed to following God's instructions. So Jewish tradition teaches that the Torah has two parts to it. In Hebrew, Torah Shebiktav and Torah Shebaalpeh, the written Torah and the oral Torah. The written Torah is what we call the five books of Moses, the, um, what, the five books that are written in a Torah scroll and um, that we read um, in the synagogue on Shabbos, on holidays, on different days, we read from the Torah scroll. That is the five books of Moses. It is also printed um, in books. When printed in books, we tend to call it the Chumash. That is, Chumash means five, or Pentateuch in um, Latin. It is, it's a five books. So that is the written Torah. What is the oral Torah? The oral Torah is the tradition, the instructions and tradition that was passed on orally, meaning from teacher to student, going from Moses throughout the generation. Now there's a misconception, there's many misconceptions about the role of the written Torah and the oral Torah. Often people think that the written Torah came first, and then the oral Torah was Moses' commentary or explanations on the written Torah. But it's actually incorrect. The truth is the other way around. The way the Torah was given is as follows. We stood, we agreed to accept the Torah, we made a covenant with God, and then Moses brought us to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God gave us what we call the Aseret Hadibrat, 10 statements, often said, called 10 commandments, technically incorrect term, but Moses taught the, uh, gave us these 10 statements, God gave us these 10 statements, which we heard directly from God. However, after 10, we had enough. It was very overwhelming, it was very, very powerful experience, we couldn't handle any more, and so we turned to Moses and we said, we cannot handle this, please, you go get the rest from God. We knew there was a lot more coming. You go get the rest, and we will listen to everything that you tell us. So at first, Moses was upset, but God said, no, very good what they have spoken. It's good that they um, are in awe of me. And so um, you come up to on Mount Sinai, and over there I will teach you the rest of the information. So Moses went up to Mount Sinai, he came down from, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. He came down from Mount Sinai and um, we got ourselves a little into trouble. We worshiped the golden calf. Moses went back up to Mount Sinai to ask for forgiveness. He prayed for 40 days. Then he came down um, to fashion out a second set of tablets. Uh, the first time he brought down tablets, which he smashed. He um, then went, fashioned a second set of tablets, went back up, spent another 40 days with God. God gave, taught him further instructions. Moses then came down after 120 days. Uh, the day was Yom Kippur. He came down with the second set of tablets. On the tablets were engraved the Aseret, and they brought the Ten Commandments that God had spoken to us directly. However, the, only, the Ten Commandments was all that we had written at that point. The rest of the information that God had taught Moses over that time on Mount Sinai was all in Moses', Moses head. He then taught it to the people. And he gathered the people, and um, first he gathered the leaders, he taught it to them, then he gathered all the people, he taught it to them. Um, his with his father-in-law Yisro's help, he um, created a hierarchy system to um, disseminate and to teach the Torah. He taught it to, some, to a group of scholars who then taught it to other scholars. 
who taught it to others. Eventually, it was taught to everyone, everyone in that way, all of Israel, um, 600,000 adult men, um, and all the people that way all studied the Torah. What were they studying? They didn't have any books. They were studying the information that Moses had taught them. <laughs> when they had questions, they went back to Moses, and Moses was able to resolve their questions. Um, if he didn't know the answer, he would go back to God directly and ask the question. God would resolve the question. Over the next 40 years, as they traveled through the desert, God gave Moses more instructions came over time in different, under different scenarios. God gave Moses additional information, uh, which Moshe then taught the people. So for the next 40 years, the people were in the desert. What did they do most of the time in the desert? They studied the Torah. What was the Torah? The instructions that they were given. They had no books. They were simply memorizing all the instructions that Moshe had taught them. All the people were studying it, analyzing it, memorizing it, making sure that they knew these instructions. It was only at the very end of Moses' life, after 40 years of teaching Torah to the people, and the people were now very familiar with the Torah. After 40 years, at the very end of Moshe's life, God tells Moshe, write down the information that I give you, the Torah. And Moshe writes down, we believe dictated by God, word for word, letter for letter. Um, Moshe writes down the five books of Moses, as we have it, in a Torah scroll. And he gives this to the people, and he tells them to copy the Torah, copy the Torah scroll. Um, all the tribes all copy the Torah scroll. The original scroll is left inside the Ark of the Covenant, um, which sits in the Holy of Holies in the temple, and the people continue to copy the Torah scroll. However, the Torah scroll was only a documentation of all the information they already had. It didn't have all the information they were given. The Torah scroll is pretty big. It's almost 80,000 words. But it didn't include all the information they were given. It rather included the information they were given, but only cryptically. It was a cryptic document, including the information they were given. It was a document that told many of the stories and gave many of the instructions, but a lot of it was unclear. And a lot of the details were not written down. However, they were taught, Moshe taught them a system called the 13 midot, or the 13 keys to decipher the Torah. And essentially, the written Torah was written in code. And Moshe said, if you want to find all the information that you've learned for the last 40 years, if you want to be able to find it in the written word, it's not all spelled out in the written word. You have to use this code. And using this code, using these keys to decipher the code, you'll be able to figure, find all the information that we have learned within the written Torah. And that's what they began to do. They began to study the code and read the written Torah with the keys that Moshe gave us, using it to try to decipher and find the information that we had already known. So therefore, we don't read the written Torah to discover God's instructions. After all, God's instructions came first before the written Torah. Rather, we study the oral Torah, the information that was taught to us, to discover God's instructions. We use the written word to find how the written Torah documents God's instructions. Now, there were times when we were unsure about different laws, um, and we would use the written Torah with the keys of deciphering it to clarify certain instructions. Most of this was done in the early days of Judaism. Today, we have done enough decoding, and um, it is no longer necessary. And most Torah study no longer involves decoding the written Torah, but is almost always studying the existing oral Torah. So again, we do not study the written Torah to find out God's instructions. Rather, we study the oral Torah to find out God's instructions. We read the written Torah to see how the, God's instructions were cryptically uh, recorded in the written Torah. Bart, you had a question? 
Yes. Um, is there any relationship between the 40 days and the 40 years? I don't believe so. Okay. Not that I know. There's a relationship between the 40 years and the 40 days that the spies spent in the land of Israel. Uh, so the spies spent 40 days in the land of Israel. That's why they spent 40 years in the desert. Uh, but I don't know if that's connected to Moses' 40 days. Okay. <laughs> I have Are there any other questions before we go further? I do. Um, two things. Is, um, you said that the, the Israelites or the Jews heard directly from God, that God actually spoke to them. Yes. Vocal. Yes, that's a, the fun, a fundamental belief in Judaism. It's not the most fundamental belief in Judaism. That God uh, spoke so to all what, of our ancestors. They heard his voice. They heard God's head. voice, yes. Yeah, I'm muted. Well, I'm sorry, can't, I didn't hear you. Yes, they heard God's voice. Okay. Is, any description, is there any so, description of what his voice sounded like? That's a very good question. Um, there isn't, to briefly answer it, because I don't want to leave such a question hanging, um, to briefly answer it, um, we don't believe that it was a, the Torah says it was a very powerful voice, um, but we don't believe that it was a regular physical sound that we hear with our ears. It was rather a spiritual experience, similar to the experience of prophecy. Yeah. Um, only that currently we don't have the ability to definitively experience spirituality and be certain that we experienced it. However, God has that ability to give to people to experience spirituality and be certain that they experienced it, just like we can experience material um, things or sound or, or sight. So when prophets have prophecy, they have a positive or a definitive spiritual experience that they are absolutely certain like sight or sound that they have experienced we all as a nation have prophecy and we stand out the jewish people as a people we are the only nation ever in history to have claimed to have all had prophecy so we all had that prophecy the entire people um exactly what that experience is like it's hard for us to know since it's an experience that's impossible for us today. Okay. Um, so it's hard for us to describe, but we do know that they experienced it because they described it. Um, and we've always known throughout our history that we've had this universe, this experience. Don, did you want to ask something? Or was this someone else? Oh, yeah. sorry. Yes. Yes. Rabbi. Yes, so the, the Talmud and the oral Torah are, are they the same? I'm going to explain it above. Very good question. Very good question. Where does the Talmud fit in? That's an excellent question. Okay. But before we get to that, before we get to that, so how do we know there is an oral Torah? So for one, we've always known just how do we know there's a Torah? It's part of our tradition. How do we know there was a revelation at Sinai? This is part of our tradition as a people forever. Um, how do we know there's an oral Torah? The oral Torah has always been part of the Jewish tradition. Um, as throughout our history, we've always known of the oral Torah. Um, we've always had the oral Torah as long as we have recorded. Um, but even in the written Torah itself, it's clear that the written Torah itself is not the beginning and end of God's instructions to us. For one, the written Torah is written cryptically. While well, some parts, particularly the stories, read very clearly, very easily, many parts of the Torah, mainly the laws, which is the main part of the Torah, the instructions, are hard to follow. They're not clear what they're saying. And so without some sort of tradition as to what they mean, how would we know what it means? Furthermore, there are many rules without details. For example, the Torah tells us a number of times, the written Torah, that is, says, do not do any work, do not do any work on Shabbat. There is no definition anywhere as to what that work entails. So, there were, and there's many such laws where the Torah gives us rules with no definition as to exactly what those rules entail. The Torah also gives us holidays. The holidays are on different dates in the calendar. This day of this month, this day of that month. How long is a month? Who decides when the months are? When's it a new year? None of that information is shared in the Torah. A lot of very basic information you need for any 
um, rule system for any religious system, none of it is shared in the written word. There must then be an oral tradition. So the written word itself would not, um, does not suffice. There must be an oral tradition. But furthermore, there is no way that we even know the written word without our tradition. How do we know that there is a written Torah? Because we have the Torah scrolls in the synagogues. Where did they come from? They were copied from other Torahs. Where did they come from? They were copied from other Torahs. Most Torah scrolls last at most a couple decades, maybe 100, 200 years. They're made of animal hide. They don't last all that long. So where do they come from? Previous Torahs. They come from our tradition. How do we know that the Torah is there? They might be written down, but it's from our tradition. So the oral Torah comes from that same tradition. How do we know what the Torah means? How do we know the meaning of the words in the Torah? If not for our oral tradition, we wouldn't know. In fact, the Torah scroll itself has no vowels, no punctuation, no sentences. If we would read the Torah itself, how would you even know what it's saying? How would you know what the words even mean? We know Egyptian hieroglyphics because, because we have the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone was a stone that translated into three different languages. So we're able to know from one language to another what the meaning is. Without it, it's very difficult to know the meaning of a language. There's a story told. There was once a fellow who came to Hillel, the great sage Hillel, and he said, I'd like to convert to Judaism. But I don't believe in the oral Torah. I only believe in the written word. So Hillel said, okay, before you convert, though, you've got to study about Judaism. You've got to study Torah. Let me start teaching you. First, we have to start by studying the alphabet. You have to start by studying the Hebrew alphabet. So they started by studying, and they, Hillel teaches him the first day. He points to an aleph, says that's aleph. Bet, bet, gimel, dalet, hey, he teaches him the letters. The next day, he says, okay, your lesson's up now. Come back tomorrow. Fella comes back to Hillel the next day. And now Hillel points to the taf and says, that's an aleph. He points to the shin and says, that's a bet. He points to the resh and says, that's a gimel. So the fellow says, yesterday you told me the opposite. Yesterday you told me that's an aleph. Now you're telling me this is an aleph. Yesterday you told me that's a bet. Now you're telling me that's a bet. So Hillel says, well, how do you know which one it is? Just because I'm telling you. You're taking my word for it. You're taking the word of tradition, of what the letters are, of how to pronounce the letters, of what the words mean. Once you're accepting tradition, take our entire tradition, including the oral tradition. So it is clear um, the written word itself has no value without the oral word. Um, as we've seen, um, the written word itself is, a, in a sense, a tradition. Um, the written word cannot be deciphered without a tradition. Even if we knew the meaning of the written words, the Torah itself is cryptic. It is clear that there is an oral tradition that comes alongside it. Now, there were Jew groups in Jewish history that rejected the oral tradition or parts of the oral tradition. One noted group was a group in the days of the Second Temple called the Tzidukim, or in Greek, Sadducees. And, um, but having rejected most of our oral tradition, they had no choice but to create their own complex system of commentary to decode and figure out what, was, what the written word was saying. Because otherwise, how do you have a calendar? How do you have holidays? So they needed to still create their own system. Without some sort of system of commentary, the Torah makes no sense. So even groups that rejected our old tradition still had to create their own. So we do believe in the oral tradition. And as we've said, the oral tradition is not a commentary or explanation on the written word. To the contrary, the oral tradition came first. The oral tradition is our Torah. The written Torah is a document that cryptically documents our oral tradition. We study the, we study the oral tradition to know the, the oral Torah, to know the instructions that God has given us. We study the written Torah to find the, uh, how the oral tradition is documented in the written world. Why did God give us an oral Torah? 
Why didn't he just write, write it, have Moses write it all down? Why did he give us an oral tradition? So firstly, there simply was too much information to be written word, to be written down and be passed down accurately. The Torah itself, the five books of Moses, is almost 80,000 words. That's a pretty big book to write by hand, written in the Torah scroll. Every word in the Torah scroll must be accurate. Every letter must be perfect. If one letter is erased or scratched, the whole Torah is not kosher. Well, Torah, written Torah is a cryptic document. If you would write down the entire, Moses would have written down the entire old tradition, it would have been many, 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 many times that. It would have been many, 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 many Torah scrolls. Having so many Torah scrolls, writing them all down and keeping them accurate generation to generation would have itself been a very, very difficult task. But furthermore, the written word itself, taking a book and reading a book, it's essentially a dead book. In other words, if you take a book, two people read a book, everybody reads the book and understands it exactly the way they want to understand it. Everyone's going to read it and understand it differently. No two people understand it the same. So if you write something down in a book and, you and people are reading it, anyone can read it, anybody who understands the language, anybody who knows how to read and understands the language will read it, and anyone can come up with a different understanding for what they read. When it comes to an oral tradition, though, when it comes to an oral tradition, it has to be taught from teacher to student. The teacher explains it to the student so to make sure that the student understands what the teacher is saying. A book doesn't explain it so that you understand what the author is trying to say. You may understand it differently than the author intended. A teacher, though, explains it to their student and sees and he gets feedback from the student and can be certain that the student understands it accurately. So in order to accurately pass down information, from one generation to the next, a written word is not enough. Because then every generation will come with a different understanding. You need an oral teaching. It needs to be taught from teacher to student in order that the teacher can make sure the student understands it properly. And people are often concerned that the oral tradition can get corrupted over time. We know the game of broken telephone where you pass on information and over time it gets broken. You pass on a, a sentence from one person to the next, and over time it gets broken. So people are often concerned that the oral teachings will get broken. The truth is, though, that if you played a group game of broken telephone with a written word, in other words, where every person along the line had to not whisper the sentence to their friend, but had to write, copy the sentence written by their friend onto another piece of paper. There would be even more mistakes. Why? We make more mistakes when copying writing than we do than repeating information that we heard. And that's why every time we copy by hand, or even every time you print, you always end up with more mistakes than you had previously. And you always add to the mistakes, unless now we have ready digital so we could just update the previous use the previous text and just update it but before prior to printing everything had to be written down everything had to be copied every copy had mistakes in fact when we go back to written manuscripts of earlier books no two written manuscripts are ever alike even when if they're edited written manuscripts are always going to be different from each other why because it's almost impossible even for a very careful writer to write without mistakes. So while the written word we may think is accurate because it is written down, over time the written word will have more mistakes than the oral teachings. Now we do have the written Torah and we have ensured that our written Torah is highly accurate and that is because of our great care in making sure that every Torah scroll had no mistakes. It was constantly read from, we knew the Torah ourselves, we knew it well, and if we found a mistake, the Torah, the Torah scroll would be 
it, if it was it was had to be fixed immediately before it was used again. And if it was, if it couldn't be fixed, it would be buried. So we were not allowed to have a Torah scroll with mistakes. We're forbidden from having a Torah scroll with mistakes, with any word erased, with any part erased. Every Torah scroll has to be 100% accurate. So we are very, very careful with writing the Torah scrolls. It's only 80,000 words, so it was doable. But with the vast oral tradition, if it would all be written down, there would be mistakes. Indeed, at a later point, as we're soon going to see, our oral tradition was written down. And in the oral works of the oral tradition that were written down, there are a lot more variances in readings than there, were in the, than there is in the written Torah. In other words, if you take a book of the Talmud or the Mishnah, there are many variations in readings based on different manuscripts because of um, mistakes that crept up over time. So those are all a number of reasons why um, God gave us an oral Torah. It'd be too big if it was all written down. Um, the written word is dead. In other words, everybody, it doesn't, a, every person that can understand it differently as opposed to the oral teaching that is passed from teacher to student, and um, the teacher makes sure the student understands it properly, and also the written word is full of mistakes. But the most important reason, and the, what appears to be from the Midrash, the primary reason why God did not give us, did not write down the entire Torah, and only told Moses to write down a cryptic version, but the rest remained oral, was so that the Torah remains exclusive property of the Jewish people. God knew that one day other nations will copy our Torah. They did. And they will try to, they know that Torah is the greatest, wisest book, most brilliant book out there, the best book out there. They will try to copy our Torah. And knowing that, God said, only the written word is going to be copied. It's only a cryptic document. They will think they have our Torah, but they won't really have it. The oral Torah they will never get because it's passed on from generation to generation. And indeed that happened. Indeed, over time, the Greeks copied our Torah into Greek. It was copied into other languages. They only have a translation of the cryptic written word. They don't have our Torah. They never got their hands on it. We're gonna do a class in a couple of weeks about is the Bible and the Torah the same thing? The short answer is no, it is not because they only have the written word. They don't have the oral Torah. Bart, did you have a question before we go further? Yes, what's the oldest version that we know of, and where is it of the uh, written Torah? That is a very good question. Um, the oldest version of the written Torah is um, that we have today, um, almost intact, not entirely intact, is called the Aleppo Codex, which comes from Aleppo. Um, it's about a thousand years old, and it sits in Jerusalem. Uh, that's the oldest. But there's a couple very old versions, um, nothing really intact. In other words, they're missing pages, there's parts that are erased. Uh, we don't really have intact. Um, words don't last that long. What are the, the Dead Sea Scrolls? Are those parts of the Torah? There are parts of scripture in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I believe there are torn fragments of some parts of the written Torah as well. As, in other words, the five books of Moses. Um, and I have another quick question. Yes. Um, okay, the, this cryptic thing, did, I, I might have missed it in your lecture, but did Moses actually write the cryptic? The written Torah, yes. Moses wrote the first Torah um, and it was um, passed on from, and it was copied by all the different tribes, and everybody copied it, and that's how we have copies of the Torah today. They had the original Torah of Moses um, for close to a thousand years after Moses. It lasted for a very long time. It was kept inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, in the days of King Yoshio, King Josiah, right before the destruction of the first temple, um, he hid the Ark of the Covenant together with the Torah inside under the temple, um, and it hasn't been found since. So we don't have the original Torah of Moses, um, but we do have um, copies, many copies that were made. Um, in Europe, there were some old Torahs that had survived um, for some time, um, for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, that um, many of them that were destroyed later in the Holocaust. There's a handful of Torahs 
today that exist um, that are a couple hundred years old. Um, there's one in Hebron that's a couple hundred years old. There's a couple others um, not much older than that. Oh, I have another question. About how much, I mean, I know when, when our synagogue bought <clears throat> the new Torah, um, and, and they're all handwritten, right? Yes. They're all handwritten. About how much do those cost? Um, that's a good question. It starts at about $30,000. How much? About 30000 is starting price. Wow. Hmm. Okay, thank you. So what exactly is then the oral Torah? What does it include? So there's a lot of different ways that we can define or divide the oral Torah. Sometimes we split it between halacha and agadah. In other words, it, is, it has two parts to it, the Torah. There are the laws, the instructions. God gave us, through Moses, 613 commandments. The 613 commandments each have many, many rules and details. Those rules are the instructions that God gave us. We call that halacha. Halacha is the instructions, the rules. And then there's the agadah. Agada is everything that is not instructions. It includes both the stories and the history of the Torah. It also includes inspirational lessons, character building, um, as well as um, mystical ideas, our relationship with God, um, all the non-part, everything that is not halacha, that is not law. We can also split our Torah into four different parts. There is what we call pshat, the simple, straightforward information that we were given. There is the remes, which is the um, hinted to, alluded to, um, deeper explanations. There's what's called drash, which is expounded, um, depth analysis. And there is the sod. The sod is the mystical teachings of the Torah. So originally, the oral Torah was the instructions that Moses gave us, that God had taught Moses on Mount Sinai, and then updated throughout the 40 years in the desert. It included both interpretations and application. Uh, so it included the, uh, so those were originally it was the instructions that Moses gave us. Over time though, we had to interpret and explain the things that Moses gave us to help us better understand it. And so we developed interpretations of what Moses already originally gave us, analysis of the law that Moses gave us. We also, needed um, to apply the law. In other words, if you have a legal code, the legal code is never going to include all possible scenarios. You create a legal code, creates, gives you the general information, gives you general rules. However, what happens then is you have to apply it to practical scenarios. That's why we have a court system. What the judicial system does is it says it applies the laws to different cases. It says in this case, which law would apply? In this case, which law would apply? So Torah scholars over the years have studied the Torah, the instructions, and have applied it to different new scenarios that arose. Over time, over thousands of years, that application has evolved and developed. In our current legal system, we call that case law. Case law is much larger than what we call the code, right? So we have, in California, we have California legal code, in other words, the rules made by the um, the rules made by our um, uh, by our politicians and by the regulators, and then there is the case law that was made by cases being resolved over the years, which becomes much larger than the original. In the Torah, we have also the original instructions given to us by Moses. We also have the way all those laws and instructions were applied over the years, which developed so many more rules than we originally had. It also includes the analysis of those laws. We analyze as we try to apply the laws. We do that by analyzing existing laws and try to figure out which, where they apply and where they don't apply. And so the, Torah, the oral Torah also included that analysis. It also includes inspirational lessons that we developed from the Torah, from the Torah's instructions over years. So then in addition to all that, in addition to the instructions that Moses gave us and the analysis and application of it over the years and inspirational lessons that were derived, in addition to all that, in the early years of Judaism, we had a Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Council of Judaism. It was made up of 71 members, and um, we had a Sanhedrin for about 1,500 years. 
of Judaism only after the destruction of the Second Temple, and they, when Jews were exiled from the land of Israel, did our Sanhedrin disband. When we had a Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, the Sanhedrin had the authority to make their own rules. We call that rabbinic law. Rabbinic law is not rules made by the rabbis, rabbis today, but it's rules made by the Supreme Council of Judaism when it stood. Most rabbinic law, most of the rules were made in the early days of Judaism, before the, by the days of King David or King Solomon. In other words, in the first 400 years or so of Judaism, we're now 3,000 years, over 3,000 years in. So close to 3,000 years ago, or more than 3,000 years ago, is when most of the rabbinic law was actually made. So the rules made by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism, um, is also included as part of the Torah, part of the instructions, because the Torah says to follow the rulings made by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism, follow their rules that they make. And so um, it's also part of Torah then. So Torah also includes the rules made by the Sanhedrin. So over the years, therefore, because of the extra laws that were made in the early days, the interpretations, the application of the law, the inspirational lessons, the commentary, oh, the analysis, over the years, the Torah grows and grows and grows. And so the oral Torah grew and grew and grew over the last 3,000 years. At a certain point, the oral Torah was very, very large. And it was very hard to retain orally. And so they began to write it down. The first work, major work of the oral Torah that was written was written about the year 200 in our, um, in our current counting. Um, and the first work that was written was the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a work, we once did a class on the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a work of 63 booklets split into six sections um, that cover all the different rules of Judaism and essentially covers its uh, somewhat cryptic work um, that covers all the works, of, all the lo basic laws of the oral Torah. Later, the most comprehensive work, later other works of the oral Torah were written down. The most comprehensive work of the oral Torah that we have today, the largest and most comprehensive, is what is called the Babylonian Talmud. We did a class about a year ago on the Talmud explaining exactly what it is um, and what it's about. But the Babylonian Talmud is a massive work um, it's 37 volumes, a massive, some larger than others. It's a massive work, and it's the most comprehensive work of the, um, it's the most comprehensive work of our oral teachings. Um, there are many other works that were written down in the, those in, in during that period. This is in the, about the 200s, 300s. There is the Tosefta, which is a, um, which is an expanded version of the Mishnah. We have Jerus the Jerusalem Talmud, which is an earlier work of analysis um, that came before the Babylonian Talmud, is a little smaller, as well as we have dozens of books known as Midrash, both Halachic Midrash, Midrash that involved, that gives us some focuses on instructions, and Agadic Midrash, Midrash that focuses on um, the stories and traditions and life lessons. Um, the same period also um, works of our mystical side of the Torah, um, uh, called Sod, or often referred to as Kabbalah, were written down as well. The main work from that period, from the 200s, is the Zohar, um, as well as a number of other smaller works were written at that time. In the years since, much analysis has been done on those books as well. Um, there's been commentary, applications of the laws to new scenarios, um, lessons that have been learned, and over time, our, our Torah, meaning the oral Torah, has developed into a massive, massive library. So how did we retain the oral Torah before it was written down? How was it passed orally from generation to generation? So in the 1500 years that the Torah was passed orally, the main focus of study was oral. In other words, they mostly focused on no, retaining the information. Children were, would essentially memorize. Schools focused mostly on memorization. They didn't focus on analysis until they got older. First, you had to memorize and know all the information. Only once memorized 
and all the information was known, only then would you begin to begin the analysis and try to better understand it and know how to apply the laws um, and, and, and learn to analyze it. But first and foremost, they focused on memory. We know that at the time, everything that they learned, every law or group of laws that were learned, had to be learned 101 times, or 100 times. So they'd learn everything, review everything 100 times. Now, I don't know if you have ever read anything 100 times, but you can imagine that if you read something 100 times, you're not going to forget it very quickly. You'll remember it very, very well. Today, it's hard for us to imagine how they memorize things. But what we know is that places that when people focus on memorization, the memory, like the brain in general, is essentially a muscle. The more you use it, the better it gets, the stronger it gets. People, cultures that focus on memorization are able to memorize, have very, very good memories. They develop their memories young. We in Judaism, actually, in schools, we still have a focus on memorization, something that was always part of Jewish schooling. Um, most schools require memorization of certain parts of the Torah, the Mishnah. Uh, we always focus on, we still focus today on memorization. Uh, most schools have memorized, most Jewish schools have memorization programs, um, but uh, something that, that doesn't exist at all in the secular world of education. Um, because we believe that memorization has to be developed. Um, and memorization, even in the age of Google, is still very important because you got to know what to Google and how to Google and where to find it. Um, and so it's, uh, memorization is still very important, and we need to focus on memorization. But in cultures that focus on memorization, people have much, much better memories. Um, we know that in times that people did not have so many written works, so many written books, People had much, much better memories. And we can even see this in our own days. We all remember, not too long ago, um, we all had dozens of phone numbers in our head. We knew all of our friends' phone numbers, all of our family phone numbers. We had dozens of phone numbers in our head. And in fact, we probably all still remember all those phone numbers from our childhood or early adulthood or from years ago, we probably still remember most of those phone numbers. Now, if I ask you for your children's phone numbers, or I ask you for your friend's phone numbers, nobody remembers it. Not only that, if I were to now tell you a phone number and ask you in five minutes to repeat it back to me, you almost certainly would not remember it. Because we don't need phone numbers anymore. They're all in the memory of our cell phones. We don't use phone numbers anymore. So we forget, we don't, we don't even have the ability anymore to memorize phone numbers. We've lost that ability. It was something that we kept for a very long time because it was necessary. We memorized random numbers and we associated them with different people. Now we don't have that ability anymore because we don't do it, we don't use it. So when memory is used, it is much, much better. It becomes much stronger. So in those days, they focused on memorization. They memorized everything again and again and again, a hundred times. Um, and therefore, they had, firstly, very good memories. They repeated things again and again to the point that it was normal for every student to know the entire Torah. You didn't continue into advanced studies until you knew the whole Torah. In fact, even later, in the days of the Talmud, the Gaonic period, we know, um, even later, after the Talmud had been, put to, had been compiled and written down, even then, students were not able to get, be ordained as rabbis or as scholars until they had memorized the entire Talmud. Now, the entire Talmud is a huge work. For us today to memorize the Talmud would be extremely difficult. But if you were living in a culture where from when you were five years old, when you started school, you spent most of the day memorizing, that's what you did all day, then your memory would be excellent and it wouldn't be that hard to memorize massive works like the Torah. And so bright people that spent 
a decade or two doing it, knew the entire Talmud by heart, word for word, without any mistakes. So they also memorized in very, very large numbers. Um, in other words, there were very large academies or yeshivas that had thousands of students. And there were a number of them. And so if somebody, there was a discrepancy, somebody did forget a detail, there were others, hundreds of others or thousands of others that could remind them. And so when many, many people all know the same thing, you're then able to, um, you're able to, if someone makes a mistake, other people are able to um, remind them. And in fact, we know that while discrepancies did arise in very, very small details, in major issues, there was never any discrepancies. Nobody ever questioned, for example, what the 39 prohibitions of work on Shabbos are. There's 39 forms of work. There is no debate as to what they are. Now, the exact classification of some of them and the application of some of them may, may be debated in, among Jewish scholars, but the, what those 39 are is not up for debate whatsoever. Well, there are five rules for ritual slaughter. There is no debate as to what those five rules are. The exact classification or exactly how to apply them may have been debated over the years, but in the basic rules of Judaism, there has never been a discrepancy. There has never been a debate. Indeed, once yeshiva struggled because Jews stopped living in the land of Israel and Jews were more spread out, and it was, there was persecution, and it was harder for people to spend decades studying. Um, and once they no longer had yeshivas of the same number, that is when they decided it was time to write it down. It was in the days when, after the exile, when, uh, of exile, when Jews no longer lived in Israel in very large numbers, it was in those days, and there weren't students coming in very large numbers and studying, that is when they realized that they need to write it down. That is when they began to write it down. Even in the years since when we have write, written it down, as I mentioned earlier, we have written down the Talmud, the Mishnah, but there are discrepancies in manuscripts. In fact, a big part of studying Talmud is making sure that you have the accurate reading of the Talmud. And manuscripts that we still have today have discrepancies. Manuscripts back then we know had discrepancies. Um, in other words, a thousand years ago, um, scholars were trying to figure out the exact correct wording of the Talmud or the Mishnah or other works. And this truth, would, that would be with any older um, document prior to printing. Um, if it was, there were many, many copies of it, no two copies would be alike, and finding the exact correct reading would be itself a very difficult and complex task. Even once printing came up, there are many, many different printings, um, and each printing, of course, brings up new mistakes. Every time you print, you end up with new mistakes. Um, if there was new typesetting each time, um, and you have to retype it, or back then they would actually put the letters on the plates, um, there would always be new mistakes. Um, thankfully, most of the printings of, a lot of the printings have survived, and so we can compare printings, and we know that usually earlier printings tend to be more accurate than um, later printings. So we do have, so the oral Torah today has been written down, and um, we do have it, um, and we do believe that it's by and large accurate, although there are debates over specific details um, as to exactly what the details are. How we then resolve those debates is a subject of its own. We discussed, uh, we had a class about a year ago about how halacha, how Jewish law is decided. So um, they usually are the result, when discrepancies do arise, we usually do resolve them by consensus, by analysis, um, but that's a subject of itself, how it is resolved. So how do we know that the oral Torah that we have today is accurate? So we do believe we worked very hard over the last 3,000 years to ensure that our Torah remains accurate and we don't forget our Torah. So firstly, our hard work, um, we believe that Jews have been dedicated for scholars for thousands of years to ensure that the Torah remains accurate. But we also believe that the Torah is God's connection to us. The Torah is God's instructions to us. We believe that God controls the world. God has total control over our world, including over our study of Torah. We don't believe that God would allow us to corrupt our Torah. 
we believe that God, who controls our world, would never let our Torah be corrected. But furthermore, even if our Torah did get corrupted, and possibly in some details it did, that's okay. God wants the Torah to follow the way we Jews understand it. When God gave us the Torah, he said, After Moses, once Moses is gone, I am never again going to give you any more information. The, the Torah will never change. There will never be any new instructions. I will never clarify my existing instructions. It's up to you to figure it out yourselves. And however you figure it out, that is it. The Talmud tells us a fascinating story. There was once a debate between the great scholars Rabbi Shu and Rabbi Eliezer about the law. It was regarding ritual purity, Tuma and Tara, a complex subject of its own um, that is mostly no, was mostly relevant only when the temple stood and mostly no longer relevant today. But the, um, there was a debate over the laws of Tuma and Tara uh, between Rabbi Shu and Rabbi Eliezer. And um, the, they were debating in the Academy of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council, and they were going to take a vote on it. And it looked like the Rabbi Yeshua had a majority for his point of view. If they would vote, the Sanhedrin wants the Supreme Council votes, that's the rule. But Rabbi Eliezer believed that he was right. And he called and he said, if I am right, let the tree outside begin to grow fruit. It was in the middle of the winter. And suddenly the tree outside began to grow fruit. And then Rabbi Eliezer said, if I am right, let the stream outside start flowing backwards, upward. And the stream started flowing upward. And then Rabbi Eliezer said, if I am right, let the walls of the um, base medrash of the um, academy begin to collapse. The walls started to fall. And Rabbi Shua got scared and he said, walls, stop in your place. And so the walls stopped. And then Rabbi Lezer said, if I am right, let a voice come from heaven and say, I am right. And a voice came from heaven and said, a voice came out and said, why are you arguing with my son Eliezer? Don't you know that he is right? And Rabbi Yeshua said, we don't pay any attention to heavenly voices. Because once God gave us the Torah, God wants us to decide the Torah on our own. And God promised to never intervene. And so at that moment, um, they took a vote. And indeed, they voted like Rabbi Yehoshua against Rabbi Eliezer. The Talmud then continues to tell us there was a great sage, saintly individual who lived some generations later called Rabbi Shua ben Levi. Rabbi Shua ben Levi would often get visited by Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, a prophet from biblical times who had ascended to heaven and became an angel and often visited different saintly people throughout our history. And so Eliyahu Hanavi would visit Rabbi Shua ben Levi. And Rabbi Shua ben Levi once asked him, remember that story with Rabbi Lezer and Rabbi Yeshua, how they were arguing and a heavenly voice came and supported Rabbi Eliezer? And remember that they voted against him anyway? What did God say when that happened? So Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, responded and said, when that happened, God smiled and said, Nitzchoni banai nitzchoni. My sons have been victorious against me, have won over me. And what this story teaches us, the beautiful story, um, the details of exactly what happened and how it happened can be debated, but the story is a powerful lesson that God gave the Torah to us so that we decipher, so that we study it on our own. Even if we get it wrong, God says that's the Torah, the way you understand it. I want you Jews to understand it. You don't have the right to corrupt it. We don't have the right to knowingly throw out the rules or knowingly misinterpret it. But so long as we follow the rules, so long as we follow the way the Torah has always been, we have the right to study it, analyze it, and come to our own conclusions. And God says, whatever you say, that is what the Torah is. That is what the Torah is going to be. So today, to conclude, I'm sorry, I'm a little over time. To conclude, today the Torah that we study is the oral Torah. 
When we speak of studying Torah, what are we studying? The oral Torah. Even if we were to study the written Torah, we are studying the written, and we read the written Torah every Shabbat, we read the Parsha every week. What are we studying? We are studying the written word based on the interpretations of our oral tradition. In other words, we're studying the oral tradition using just the written word as a base and trying to understand how our oral traditions fit into the written word. There would be no Judaism without the oral Torah. Judaism would make no sense without the oral Torah. It wouldn't exist as we know it without the oral Torah. Any attempt to read the written word without the oral Torah rejects 3,000 years of Judaism, 3,000 years of Jewish history. So when we say Judaism, Judaism is the oral Torah. We don't take the written word and read it at face value. Sometimes I get questions, usually from non-Jews, your Bible says this. Your Bible says that the punishment for whatever it is is stoning. Do you stone people? I tell them, I don't read the Bible. We study the Torah. The Torah is our oral traditions. We've got to first study the Torah in order to understand the meaning of the written word. We don't just take the Bible and read it, or the written Torah and read it. Um, you, you've got to read the written Torah within the context of the oral teachings. You want to really understand the Torah? Study the oral Torah. Take, study the Talmud. Study the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law that we have today and the many works of our oral traditions and their interpretations as if they've, they've been explained over the years. Today, our Torah has many, many works. There is today, um, thanks to modern technology, there is a database that you can purchase of our oral Torah, of the Torah, um, called Otzer HaChachma. It has over 100,000 volumes. I think now, because of the quarantine, they made it accessible for free. Um, you could go to, I think it's called, it's otzerhachachma.org. Um, it's over 100,000 volumes um, and counting. Um, now, it's impossible to study the entire oral Torah. Um, in fact, um, I don't think you could even read the names of 100,000 volumes in a lifetime. Um, but we do need, so while it may take a lifetime to read, we cannot read all of it. We still, the Torah is ours to study. And there are important textbooks, or in other words, important works of the Torah that we should be studying, both the written Torah with our oral commentaries, such as Rashi, um, or other traditional Jewish commentaries, um, and the works of the Talmud, and um, books of Jewish law. And there are no shortage of books, important books that we can read. And given that now this week is going to be Shavuos, it's a time to recommit to studying Torah. And we do that, you can do that by joining our classes, our Sunday morning class, um, other classes, invite other Jews to other join the classes, as well as by studying yourself. Now that we're all in quarantine, we have more time, hopefully, to study. There is so much available. You can go to our website, jccmb.com. There is a huge library on our website um, of articles, um, audio classes, video classes that you are able to access. We also have the Chayena booklets that we distribute. You can come to the, we still have them. You can come to the JCC and pick them up. It's essentially um, a booklet every, that they put out every week with different interesting things to read on the week. Um, I would encourage you to read. You also can get it at Chayeno.org. You can get it at your, um, uh, you can get it online and get a, um, and you can download it on your phone or on your iPad um, to read it yourself. And so I encourage you all to, um, to take this opportunity of the giving of the Torah to begin to study Torah or continue and increase the study of Torah, encourage others to do so. Um, and this Shavuos, we will re-experience the Kabbalat HaTorah, the accepting of the Torah um, with the reading of the Ten Commandments. Hopefully, we will be able to read it in person. If we can do a public reading, we will let you know um, the details. Um, it will probably be in groups or in small groups. Um, we'll let you know the details if we are able to do it. If not, um, I encourage you to read it, or if you're unable to make it, I encourage you to read the Ten Commandments yourself. You can find it in the Torah, in the book of Exodus. We will send out an email with details. And I wish you all to, once again, recommit to the Torah with joy and internalize the Torah and um, re use this opportunity to us 
to reconnect to the Torah. Thank you for joining us. Next week we will talk about the um, we'll talk about Samson, the great Jewish leader, um, and his story.